0: And and in fact, it was funny, and I don't know about you, but I would get like the email of you're late in getting this done and you've got 24 hours to do this. And kind of the the idea was you're going to get fired or whatever.
1: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
2: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. At first glance, this John Deere tractor plowing a field looks like it has a ski rack on its roof, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But on closer examination, I can see the metal bars hold sensors of some sort and it's very clear there's nobody in the cab, no farmer behind the wheel. It's just a it's an
0: awesome sight to see. I
2: know we Dan Liferib of John Deere. I'm the director
0: of automation and autonomy.
2: John Deere is a 184-year-old company. By all rights, Deere should be a pondering, slow-moving, plodding, incumbent company unable to pivot. But John Deere is surprisingly nimble, just like the robotic
0: tractors it makes. Uh, Going through the field without an operator in the cab, uh, not just straight up and down the field, but actually making a precise turn on the end of the row, raising and lowering the implement in order to ensure uh, that it's doing its job. The scale at which these machines are physically and the, the impact that they're making on agriculture is just something awesome to witness. People often don't realize just how digitally advanced many people in the farming industry are and the agriculture business are. Venture capitalist and Stanford Business School instructor Robert Siegel. So with John Deere, they've been actually doing autonomous farming with their vehicles for actually you know 10 to 20 years. They can tell where all of their equipment is within three centimeters anywhere on the planet. And so they're very, very aware of how digitization allows for ongoing communications with farmers and with their customers and ways that they can use that information to grow crops more efficiently.
2: Siegel has been studying successful American companies and says the best combine the brains of technology with the brawn of manufacture and logistics.
0: No matter what industry they're in, every product or service that they deliver to customers is gonna be connected. And there's a physical side and a digital side.
2: An obvious example is Amazon, which, not only presents you with products, the digital side, but gets them to you in two days, the physical side. Or John Deere making a tractor and then automating it.
0: The number of sensors that are on a tractor, the the way they have to work autonomously and how to, they have to read both physically what's happening in the fields, be able to give that information easily uh, readable to the farmer when he or she is in the cab, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and in the end, the farmer just wants to make sure the food is being grown and developed and delivered. And how do you do that in a simple way? And how do you use data and analytics to make the physical side of it more efficient and more effective? That's where John Deere has really, really thrived.
2: By all rights, a, a company that old should be old and plotting and an incumbent. What has that company done to
0: stay nimble? I think we, we both John Deere and every large incumbent that we studied, there were three attributes that we saw when when they were able to kind of make through transitions. The first was, you know, the CEO, the person at the top, is committed to the uh, continuing to keep technology moving forward. You're not just costing out your business; you're investing in your business to make sure that there are ways that, that you're going to stay at the forefront of technology. Secondly, coming up with creative structures inside of your company so that your your crazy wild ducks, your entrepreneurs who are inside the company, can find ways that they can you know, thrive both in their careers as well as economically and not be constrained by an existing structure. And the third thing we found somewhat like John Deere is it's patient capital. Right, This is capital. When they look at long-term investments, it's not just the stock is up now, so we're going to be a corporate venture capitalist when the stock is up and when it goes down, we'll stop. Investing in innovation is a constant part of what they do. And so those three things really, really, you know, we saw it in John Deere and we saw it in all of our successful large incumbents where, you know, patient capital, creative structure, and the CEO is involved.
2: There is one thing that Deer has done that is a bit defensive like a like an old school company would do, in which it wasn 't allowing farmers to repair its own equipment uh that is a classic incumbent we 're not going to move with the times sort of sort of company or at least decision policy
0: you know it 's funny there's two sides to that on the one hand, yes, we can say you know that are larger, industrial, older organizations, you know, they want to have closed systems and they don't want to have open systems because they want to be able to constrain what people can do. On the other hand, Apple does the same thing. Yes, right? it does. Really, Apple, you know, who's going to repair your phone? They have to approve everything that goes into the Apple store. So it's really kind of about control. So I'm not sure if Deere's doing it is because they're old and from the Midwest and dated or if it's actually about control and them wanting to make sure that they're collecting the economic rents that they want. And Apple's a great example of, you know, one of the greatest companies in technologically advanced companies in the world that's doing the exact same thing.
2: (laughs) So you and I both, although we didn't know each other at the time, worked uh, for General Electric because General Electric owned NBC at the time. You worked in their video security division, right? Correct. Okay. So uh, GE is a great example of an incumbent company in the sense that I don't know if you had to do this, but we had to take all of these online classes and it was more than just diversity and things. There was one about welding.
0: Yeah, okay, you're nodding your head. Did you have to take the welding class? I didn't have to take the welding class. I did have classes about site facilities and using poisons you yes. know, on the site. <laughs> and, and in fact, it was funny, and I don't know about you, but I would get like the email of, you're late in getting this done, and you've got 24 hours to do this. Right. And they, kind of the, the idea was you're going to get fired or whatever. And it was the horrific side of everything that we saw in 30 Rock. And, right? Which, would, by
2: the way, is incredibly accurate. I'm the new vice president of East Coast Television and microwave oven programming.
1: That sounds like you program microwave ovens.
0: Th- that's actually a documentary, not a comedy series. Like it's about what it was really like. People, people think we're teasing, but it is—it is so <laughs> spot on. And but the thing about GE that I think a lot of people don't appreciate, and I was there in the mid two thousands. My division was going through the transformation of analog video to digital video, and I actually got a fair amount of support at that time. Jeff Immelt had been the CEO for about four to five years when I joined, and there was a lot of push to try to change the organization. It, um, you know, Welch, who ran the company before, it was really, really hard because he was all about cost out and efficiency. And so yeah. they were trying to go through that balance of creativity, but also everything that had made GE great for the previous 20 years. The things that GE did better than any company I've ever seen, even all the ones I've studied in Silicon Valley, their HR policies and their people development policies were an order of magnitude better than anything I've ever seen. How they thought about the hiring process, how they thought about developing talent, the investment they made in their talent, best in the world that I've ever seen. And so while you did have those problems of those emails you would get of, oh my God, now I've got to <laughs> learn about poisons. <laughs> I had one about
2: enclosed spaces and I, and I thought to myself, if I'm going into enclosed spaces, we've got a very, very serious yeah, exactly. situation. <laughs> Especially
0: yes. you in the, in the media industry. Right. Uh, so it was a very, very it was a great time. I'm really glad that I did it. It also gave me probably like you an empathy for understanding what it's like to be inside of an organization that's been around for over a hundred years that has the pride and legacy that comes with this. Yes, it was founded by Thomas Edison. Yes, and yet in a world where now everything is connected from you know, uh, wind turbines to gas turbines to airplanes to locomotives? And what are the skills that you need to do to combine this? Like, much like the changes in the media industry, Beth Comstock, you know, who yeah, was a, sure. Beth was one of the people at the forefront of trying to understand what changes she had seen in the media industry and how that was impacting all other parts of the GE business.
2: You also did a startup, and this is where you and I met, what, 20-some years ago, right? Well, I did a, a consumer television show called Tech Now. You were making a digital picture frame Uh, For a company called Weave that that you had created, Uh, what did you learn as a startup entrepreneur that you've carried with you all this time?
0: So, probably the most important thing that I'm still working on twenty some odd years later is, you know, people tell you startups are your highest highs and your lowest lows, but nobody tells you that they're 20 minutes apart. (laughs) And and so, I think that, that there's kind of a a maturity. That you need to combine with the optimism of youth, that often is kind of you know stereotyped inside of startups. But to really kind of grow and scale a business is hard. How you're going to lead people, you know, especially when you're not feeling the confidence inside when you're hitting hard times. Uh, How are you going to make sure you get the product to market? And when you're a small company, how do you partner with large companies? We partnered with Kodak, and that was really hard because they were you know speaking of incumbents exactly Rochester-based, you know, old line. Most of their money was coming from film versus digital. Um, And and how did we have that relationship? And they had all the power. Like, we needed them. Um, I I would say that just trying to, as a venture capitalist, trying to have empathy for my CEOs, remembering how hard it is about what they're going through. And sometimes I need to let them be 28 years old, right, and make some of those mistakes. That as a coach, I, I can try to help them. I can try to guide them. But sometimes I've got to remember, let them be 28, and sometimes they're going to stub their toes. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: I enjoy with with people our age talking about. Hey, you remember Excited Home on on one hundred and one with the slides and those sorts of things. And you are for the people who can't see you. You know you you've got a big smile. Is there a danger for men of our age uh, to take lessons from decades past? You know, we've been here a long time. We know things that we are going to miss the new things that the that the younger people who maybe are brand new to Silicon Valley are seeing and
0: we're not. You know, one of the expressions that I've heard is that the former CEO of Intuit uh, would say that what you want is a combination of fresh eyes and wise eyes. Mm. And so... Uh, you want to have the ability to say, okay, help our entrepreneurs make original mistakes, not the mistakes that have been made in the past. Like, the job is to avoid the avoidable. On the other hand, you've got to be open to new ideas. And so, one of the great things about being on the faculty at Stanford is I get to teach 350 young people every year. And, and, you know, our children are 23, 21, and 19 right now. I get to see how their generation deals with technology. And I think if you have that natural curiosity to see how things grow and change and evolve, can you combine what's now possible Possible with new capabilities, but also trying to remember, you know, gravity's been around a long time, right? So gravity always comes back. Gravity will not be suspended. So there are certain rules of business, certain rules of how we are as a species that are gonna be with us, but also understand that there's sometimes new ways to do things.
2: There, there was a debate even before COVID about the value of a college education, about the value of a graduate school education, about the value of a graduate school education at a high-end expensive school. Um, Defend that for me now as someone who instructs at at Stanford GSB.
0: I think the argument actually breaks into two parts. We had an you look at what's happening with our debt in our country for students going to college and you've got to wonder is it worth it we have saddled our children in a generation of of, of of you know in particular the Millennials where they're digging their way out of a hole right the notion was if you went to college you went to university you were going to have better jobs you were going to be able to live a better life and 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 it was the ticket to mobility uh, rising up in social classes the problem is we did it with such you know burdens of, of capital costs that they're digging their way out and so it's kind of like you sit there and say is this really worth it mm-hmm. and a lot of jobs, you know, you can have trade jobs and by the way even engineering at some level can be a trade job and coding can be a trade job. You've got to figure out is that the best way for, you know, for you one to get an education and better oneself and no, not everybody needs to go to a high-end university. I do think however, if you're lucky enough to have that option, You know, Stanford's the greatest team I've ever played for, bar none. You know, my colleagues on the faculty are the smartest people in the world, and I get to learn from them every every day. When I'm teaching the students, it's like teaching at the United Nations. You know, I stand in front of the room, and I've got 80 students who come from all over the world, and they want to do good, and they want to do well, and I learn from them probably as way much as they learn from me. And so I think if you have the opportunity to... Study something and in a place where you're going to grow as an individual, it's a great thing. But is it necessary? I think that's where the narrative went off the rails. Mm-hmm. And I know that you know my career. You know, you've hosted some of my classmates and colleagues here on your show. I know that my career would not have been what it was if I didn't have the opportunity to learn from the people that I did. And so um, I think it's a, what I'll say is it's a huge opportunity if you get the opportunity. But by no means is it necessary.
2: Yes. You're a popular instructor at Stanford, and one of the, the t- classes you teach is the industrialist dilemma. Can you explain what that is to me?
0: So the Industrial dilemma came out of uh, some conversations that originally uh, started between me and Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box, and also Max Vessel, who's the chief learning officer at SAP and we were trying to understand what was happening as the world became increasingly connected in a world where everything is is contains hardware and software how are incumbents going to have to change and also what do disruptors need to understand and so we started looking at both product development and organizational structures and you know how were things done in the past and why were they done that way and how was silicon valley doing things and our thesis when we started was that most of the dinosaurs were going to die and the silicon valley was going to take over and then we realized we were wrong okay so like you know three four years into it, as we studied all of these companies, we learned that you did have some incumbents who were doing a great job of defending things, and some incumbents that the three of us would say, yeah, those companies are gonna go out of business. And big names, and companies that have struggled. Um, We also saw that some of the disruptors really were doing some innovative things and figured out how to learn from their incumbent colleagues. But also, we also saw a lot of hubris and arrogance, mm-hmm. where people really didn't understand kind of how do their customers make money? You know, how do you have to deliver a great experience to a customer and why does that customer intimacy matter? You can't just have everything that's a digital platform and assume everybody's going to use the same thing. How do you make sure that you really understand, you know, your customers' businesses and are you serving them well? And so I think what we, over the last six, seven years, the original thesis was wrong and the pandemic, actually, interestingly enough, brought us back to kind of where we started. And what we found was that the incumbents who had done the digital investment early, those were the ones that were winning. So you know, Target is a great example Mm -hmm. that did really, really well during uh, the pandemic. But a lot of that was because Brian Cornell, you know, they really looked hard at saying, okay, we need to invest to deliver a great experience in the store. And they've got 250 people with PhDs here, about a mile from us, who are using data and data analytics not only for the e-commerce portion of their their, the commerce, but also how do they design their stores inside. And so the pandemic allowed them to kind of hit the turbo boosters and really accelerate things. So I guess at the end. Kind of come back to the companies that really combine digital and physical the best. Mm-hmm. Those were the ones uh, that won. Now the last thing I'll say is things like Agile and Scrum are really really important, and you know you see incumbents using those capabilities. But last time you were on an airplane, Scott, you were really happy that that airplane engine was not designed using Agile and Scrum. <laughs> and so the trick is you want to make sure how do you use kind of the quality uh, and and things like Six Sigma for where lives people die when sure, you get it wrong. Sure. But how do you combine that with speed and agility being close to your customer and maybe transforming how you organize your company to serve your customers better.
2: Bringing it back around, as you said, uh, that Target has labs here in Silicon Valley, as does Walmart, as does John Deere. Uh, Bringing it back to John Deere, this idea of even if you're not based in Silicon Valley, it does make sense to have a foot in Silicon Valley.
0: Absolutely, yes. So I would argue that globalization 1.0, was about labor arbitrage. We're gonna put low-cost manufacturing in Asia, low-cost engineering in South America, we're gonna do uh, low-cost customer service in India. And you would say, oh, it's a hub-and-spoke model, we have the headquarters somewhere, look, we're global, and we all got cheap televisions. Globalization 2.0 is gonna be very different. I think organizations are gonna be structured much more like mesh networks. Communication and collaboration tools are so much better than they were even five to seven years ago. that you can put centers of excellence really kind of anywhere. And if you have a presence in Silicon Valley, you'll be able to draw on a a small region that's got five major academic research institutions, more venture capital money than we know what to do with, um, accountants and, and experienced entrepreneurs who go back into mentoring. And so the larger companies can kind of tap into that by putting a presence here. And, and I think that's one of the important things. The real trick, though, for incumbents is to make sure the things that are learned here kind of can get back and filter into the parent organizations, no matter where in the world it is, whether it's in the Midwest of the United States or the East Coast, or whether it's in Asia or South America or Europe. You, you really want to make sure that there's that flow of data and flow of information back and forth between the teams that are here and the teams that might be at headquarters.
2: Robert Siegel, instructor at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, general partner at XSEED Capital, and author of a new book, The Brains and Brawn Company, How Leading Organizations Blend the Best of Both Digital and Physical. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers, under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at at PressHereTV.com.